The third lesson this morning comes from the book of Isaiah. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, the kings of Judah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of your burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who is required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feast my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Come now, let us argue together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are like red crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This is the word of the Lord. The first thing I thought after reading this passage was I sure am glad I'm not these guys. What could they possibly have done to make God so mad? Could you imagine? Isaiah is a book that deals with the sins of Judah and God's people. And just from the part that we read, it is clear that there have been some seriously egregious sins that have been committed. God's people haven't been doing what they're supposed to have been doing. At this point in time, it was many years after God's initial covenant with Abraham. The people were starting to doubt that a great nation was ever going to happen again. Maybe God had forgotten the promise. This is hundreds of years later, many generations removed. Throughout the time, the Israelites had been wondering if their relationship with God really meant anything at all to their daily lives. They knew God existed. I really don't think they questioned that. Many of them had just let their relationship with God fall into such a state of complacency that they weren't able to see how their lives, how their devotion to God made any difference at all to the way they lived on an everyday basis. So they lived their lives on their holy day of the week one way. And they lived their lives the rest of the week another way. What we read in Isaiah is that this sort of behavior truly bothers God. This is the kind of behavior that God has sent a prophet to warn the people about. This is the kind of behavior that God says his soul hates and will cause him to turn his eyes. I sure am glad I'm not one of these people. What could they possibly have done to make God this mad? Can you imagine? 
I have a friend that I met in college. I was having a really difficult time my first semester getting adjusted to college. Making friends in a new place just wasn't coming very naturally to me. So I prayed that God would give me at least one friend, just one person that I could hang out with. That person didn't even have to talk. I just needed someone to be there with me. It wasn't long after that prayer that I met Kyle. I got what I prayed for. Kyle rarely speaks, but he doesn't really need to. We met each other one day driving through Wofford's campus. Both of us had loud, nasty hot rods. I'm sure most of the professors and many of the students at that time really didn't like us that first year. For the longest time, our friendship revolved around our cars. We would go through the various parking lots and the parking garages in Spartanburg, revving our engines, trying to see how many car alarms we could set off. I discovered that my Nova will set off almost any Cadillac. But over time, we built a mutual trust with one another. I started to notice that Kyle never really talked that much about church or God. Like a good kid raised in church every Sunday, I asked him one day which church he was a member of. I felt like our friendship had progressed to the point that if I asked him about his faith, he wouldn't think it was too weird and just ignore me for the rest of his life. You see, the thought never crossed my mind that maybe he wasn't a member of a church. In true fashion, Kyle responded with only a few words. My family and I tried it a few times. Every church was the same. Full of hypocrites just going through the motions. Didn't see how it really mattered if we went or not. Those few sentences summed up Kyle's view of the church. His response blew me away. Then I started thinking about my own life and what my experience with different churches had been. The sad reality is that my experience had not been that different than Kyle's. We were approaching the same thing from two opposite perspectives. You see, I'm a person who had gone to church my entire life, and so it was just something that was done. It was something that I never really thought about too much. But I saw some sort of a need to go. He's someone who never grew up in the church. He was someone who entered the church once or twice, maybe a few times, but never felt a strong enough connection to see a need to go back. It was this outside perspective that allowed me to start looking more closely at churches, but more generally at God's people and how we act, the way we behave. And as I started looking more and more at Christians, I noticed one big thing that caused them to stand out from non-Christians. Sunday morning. Don't get me wrong, I realize that I'm painting a very negative picture right now of Christianity, but I'm doing so intentionally for two reasons. This is the way that many people who do not have a relationship with Jesus view the church. And these are the people that God calls us to go reach. They want to know what it is about Christianity that's so special that they should give up a part of their week, a part of their lives to this cause. And second, if we don't take a step back every now and then and examine what we are doing and why we are doing it, we may very well fall into this disease of complacency. It's been almost nine years since I first met Kyle. His view of the church has not changed. I've invited him to come to church several times. He's come. He still hasn't seen a reason to come without being prodded. What are we doing?
What things are we doing as a church, as Central United Methodist Church, that are reaching beyond the walls to those who don't see a need to come to church? I can name a lot. As a church, as this church, we are doing well. On the whole, we tend to get it right. This is a church that's not perfect, but it's one that strives to reflect the missional love of God to the community and the world. And Central does a good job of this. But the bigger question is, what are you doing as an individual that's reflecting this missional love of God every day of the week? Are you going through the motions? Are you having a difficult time seeing how your relationship with God should make any difference with the way you live your life? If you are, it's okay. You're not alone. Each of us falls into this pattern of complacency, this pattern of just going through the motions from time to time. The trick is to not accept this as the way that God has made us to be. This is what Isaiah is warning us against. God knows that we're going to have ups and downs in our faith. There are going to be times that we have more faith than we can comprehend, but there are going to be other times when we can't find enough faith to get out of bed to come to church on Sunday morning. When we have these times of complacency, it means that it's time for us to take a step back and pray. Examine what we are doing and see if that is what God is calling us to do. We may discover that God needs us somewhere else. We may discover that we're right where God needs us to be and we just need a renewed sense of purpose. Whatever the case may be, we cannot tolerate a complacent faith in our own lives because God is not okay with complacent children. God has told us what we are to do. God has given us a roadmap for the way that we are to live our lives. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. If we strive with everything that we are and all that we have to abide by this, Maybe the cows of the world will be able to see a reason to come to church. More importantly, though, if we strive to get rid of the complacency in all of our churches, maybe the cows of the world will be able to see the church as the body of Christ and not as the bouncer to get through to Christ. I know that I've painted a pretty dim picture of Christianity. I know that many of you are probably thinking that I'm being too critical of the church. But perhaps this is the sort of examination that needs to take place every now and again. Just to see if we truly are living in to the good news of Jesus Christ. And even if we are getting it wrong more times than not, even if we are becoming more focused on the routine than the meaning behind the routine, even if we as individuals have found ourselves becoming the very definition of complacent Christians, there's still good news for us. Isaiah brought the message from God that a complacent religion hurts God. But Isaiah also brought a message that God is willing to work with us in the midst of our lukewarm religious lives. The prophet says, Come now, let us argue together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Let us argue together. That's an interesting way of putting it. God wants us to argue it out with Him. God is giving us permission to be upset, to get angry, to be passionate. 
God just wants us to realize that our faith is important enough to get passionate about. God wants us to cling to our faith the same way that we would our job, our friends, our family, whatever it is that you hold most dear to your life. Whatever it is that's keeping us from having a passionate, authentic relationship with God, we've got to take it to Him. Argue it out with God. God's strong enough to handle it and help us with it. And then God wants us to take that same passion and spirit out into the world to tell people why Jesus matters. Until our lives reflect the intense desire that God wants us to have about the good news, we shouldn't expect others to get too excited about the faith either. If all we are doing is just going through the motions, that's all anyone else will see. But when we're willing to put ourselves before the throne of God, remembering who we are and whose we are, knowing that we are loved by God despite all that we have done and all that we have left undone, it is then and only then that we can truly get excited about our faith. And I can promise you that if you are excited about Jesus, then the cows of the world will take notice. During that time of examination, when I was looking around at the different churches and the way those churches were interacting with the world and with the community around them, I started to accept Kyle's position. The more I thought about the way that I saw many Christians living, the more I didn't want to be any part of it. It drove me away from the church to the point that I stopped attending. For three years, I looked for a reason to go back to the church. The body of Christ that I once knew, but I could not find a reason to do it. When I got to seminary, I met some guys who were planning to go into the ministry. They were a year ahead of me, and I looked up to them like they were the older brothers that I never had. I respected them not only because they accepted me in my broken and fragile spiritual state, but also because they actually lived the faith passionately in which they believed. And this faith that they lived looked a lot like acceptance. They knew I questioned my faith. They knew I was ready to throw it all away. They met me where I was and they did not judge me for it. They were gentle. They handled me with the same care that a doctor does with a newborn baby. And there's a reason for that. As far as they were concerned, that's exactly what I was. I was a newborn. Although I had been brought up in the church, this was the first time that I felt I had started to live into my baptism as a beloved child of God. And these young men of God saw a need to raise me up in the faith. They loved me and took me under their wings. They protected me. They taught me. They taught me how to live as a child of God. One who is not always perfect, but one who knows how to do good. How to give a voice to those who have no voice. And how to love with all that I am. These are things that I had to be taught by those who had gone before me. Those who already knew what difference the body of Christ can make in a person's life. And that isn't something that can be done by just going through the motions. This is something that requires a true, authentic faith that is nourished by the grace of God and supported by a community of faith. So the big question is, are we just going through the motions? Or are we seeking to live our lives in a way 
that truly reflects the good news of Jesus Christ and what that can mean for those who don't yet know it. Amen.